Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In this episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I dive into part two with Dr. Suzanne Devkota, who, as I mentioned previously, is director of the Human Microbiome Research Institute at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA and an associate professor of medicine at UCLA, as well as an adjunct investigator at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center at Harvard Medical School. She is a extraordinarily well-published scientist in the top journals, including Nature, Science, and Cell. And in this episode, we cover a few questions that are very valuable to you, like, do all diseases start in the gut? Prebiotics or probiotics? Anybiotic? What about being vegan or vegetarian? And what does that do to your gut health? And finally, how to boost your immune system from a gut-related perspective. I hope you enjoy this episode and this beautiful, beautiful conversation with the one and only Dr. Suzanne Devkota. Thank you to one of the sponsors of the show, and that is One Farm, a farm to supplement company that makes products designed to improve people's lives using whole organic ingredients sourced directly from the farmers that grow them. Where does it benefit you? I am so glad you asked. This month, they have a gut health superfood broth. This is a bone broth that has been enhanced with botanicals and adaptogens to help support a healthy microbiome and support better gut health. We have learned all about the importance of gut health, which is the new and next frontier of health and wellness. It's very important that this becomes more of a focus. I think it's been on the back burner for a long time. This bone broth has garlic and onions from organically grown heirloom garlic. Add one to two scoops to warm water and it's ready to drink. This month, One Farm is offering my listeners a free gut health superfood. All you have to do is pay $5 for shipping, go to onefarm.com, add the gut health superfood to your cart, and use the code L-Y-O-N-G-H to redeem. You can also click the link in the show notes to have it automatically applied, and you can check out some of their other amazing products. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show, Element. L-M-N-T. Again, Element, I've mentioned before, it's an amazing product. It's very easy to travel with. If you are finding yourself dehydrated, fatigued, low-carb, high-carb, paleo, keto, any of the four or five-letter diet words, Element can help you maintain your hydration. If you are training hard, which I'm hoping you are, Element is a great way to really replenish yourself It contains 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. It is an electrolyte formula that I have found to be amazing. When I get dehydrated, I get headaches. This seems to help a lot. Also, it's really helped with any kind of muscle cramps that I was getting when I have changed up my training (laughs) most recently. 
Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packs free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors. And uh, you can get yours at drinkelement.com slash Dr. Lion. That's drinkelementlmnt.com slash Dr. Lion. If you don't like it, it's risk-free. They'll give you a refund. I know that you are going to love it as much as I do. What about prebiotic, uh, probiotic, postbiotic, all the biotics? All the biotics. Um, okay, so let's let's define them, break them down. Yep. Um, the prebiotic is like your fibers. It's the things you eat to support growth of your native gut bacteria, right? Good ones that you want to, you want to encourage growth. So um, it's, and it, we often talk about prebiotics as, as fibers, because that's what we know the most about. My definition of a prebiotic is anything you eat that can encourage a beneficial gut microbiome community. Um, so that also include polyphenols and yeah. the, the food major component. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anything that promotes, you know, scaffolding and not just the production of beneficial metabolites, but actually provides support for the community. And a lot of it, we still don't know what all those things are. Um, but I know it's not just fiber. So, so prebiotic is, you know, the, the support matrix, essentially what you eat. Um, a probiotic is the organism itself, the bacteria. You're consuming the bacteria and and hoping it's colonizing your gut for benefit. That's the probiotic, is the bug. So prebiotic is the, f- the food, probiotic is the bug. And then the postbiotic, there's a couple different definitions, but it's um, uh, my definition is everything that community that that bacterial community is producing the metabolites the chemicals the non the non-living fraction that is produced as a byproduct of what the bugs are doing with the prebiotics right um but it also could include dead bacterial cells it's just not live bugs postbiotics are not live bugs um but i'd like to add that it really you know the the metabolites and what the bugs are producing that whole mixture um, is should be considered as postbiotics. Mm. As well. Do you think that there's any evidence for prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics? Uh, in terms of beneficial, like... For the... I'm putting you on the spot a little bit because uh, the prebiotics probably have some good evidence for health and supporting health. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there's, you know, the the probiotics seem a little bit like the Wild West? Yeah. There's so many... Um, do you think that there's benefit for probiotics? Does it actually change our um, microbiota? Yeah. Or is it just change it while you're taking it? Do you have to continue to take it? Yeah. My my view on this, um, and I, I, I don't want to speak for the microbiome field, but I would venture to be so bold to say that their view too has changed a lot um, over probably the last five years. And... Um, historically, I would say, okay, um, at worst, they do nothing. So it's not going to cause harm. Um, and if you take antibiotics, definitely take a probiotic afterward to recolonize the gut. Do you still feel this way? No. Okay. No. Um, because there has been data to show that taking a probiotic after antibiotics can actually delay normal recolonization of your, of your gut, which is what you want. You want normal 
normal colonization minus whatever you're trying to get rid of with antibiotics um, and that the probiotics can, can delay that. Um, the other compelling piece of data, and this has been a, a long standing battle, is um, what has what's on the label of a probiotic is often not what is actually active when you take the product, right? So you might be paying 100 bucks mm. for a certain number of billion bugs, but you're really getting a fraction of that. So there's a lot in the industry that kind of has to change in terms of labeling. So that's one thing separate that none of us have control over for the most part. Um, but then what colonizes? And, oh, right. right? And in other studies, they have found that if you already have the organism that is in the bottle, which probiotics are, we have naturally, they're normally occurring bacteria in our GI tract. Um, and if we are, if we already have any of that, those bugs that we're taking orally, they won't, they won't colonize because that home, that niche is already filled mm. by what you already have. In that case, what you probably want is a prebiotic to encourage the, a bloom of that beneficial bug that you already have. If you're missing that bug, then a probiotic theoretically could be helpful to fill in what you're missing. But how do you know what you're missing? Well, you have to sequence your microbiome to see what's missing and then maybe have a custom probiotic. And there's companies that are doing this out there um, thinking that way. But at the moment, you kind of blindly go to Whole Foods or wherever and you buy your probiotic and you hope it's doing something. And what I would say is if you are eating a diverse diet, diverse meaning, you know, lots of five, your salads, you have your proteins, you have just diversity of healthy foods, don't take a probiotic. You will encourage natural growth of what you have in your GI tract. I think it's a can be a waste of money. Hmm. You were talking about um, leveraging the microbiome for nutritional deficiencies. Yeah. And I will lay that at your doorstep because there's just you, you did a really interesting study, and I think Don was a, a collaborator mm -hmm. on the, this study. Uh, I would love for you to explain um, this kind of proof of concept study. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm sure you've done many, but there was one really in particular that was so interesting with amino acids. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, it's the, this study stemmed from this concept and observation that, first of all, all we were talking about all these postbiotics that gut bacteria produce. We haven't even scratched the surface of what gut microbes produce and can do for our bodies for benefit. Um, and so we got thinking to, thinking about the amino acids and essential amino acids that bacteria produce, which bacteria can produce the full repertoire of amino acids, which is pretty remarkable. And in part, they do it for themselves, for their own growth, but they also release it out into the, you know, into the gut. And we know we can absorb amino acids in the GI tract. So that's really compelling. So and they have to understand, the listener has to understand how compelling what you just said is. We have this idea, we have 20 different amino acids, nine of which are essential, which must, which we traditionally tell people mm -hmm. you have to get from the diet. Right, yeah. And some of your work really is pointing out that, you know, whether this is for any length of time, the gut microbiome can actually generate... Yeah these essential amino acids, which ultimately changes the entire uh, way in which we think about it and also the way in which we may eventually speak about it. Yeah. It's a big deal. I, I mean, I think, I think so. Um, you know, yes, the fact that, you know, the things we need to get from food, and we have essential fatty acids and so on, um, 
our microbes can produce these too. So, you know, what, what, what does that mean for um, things like malnutrition, right, in, in other parts of the world where protein is not readily available? Um, or for religious reasons, you choose not to eat meat, or um, if you've chosen to go strict vegan, right? And we were, we were sort of struck by, an, again, an observation that um, uh, the choice to become vegan is totally fine. But you, in order to have um, adequate, essential amino acid balance, you have to combine your proteins in a, in a specific way. And not everyone knows that. And the the choice uh, to go vegan may not come along with a well thought out, okay, I need to combine this protein, this protein to prevent deficiency. It may just be, this is what I like to eat, so this is what I'm going to eat. And yet, um, it doesn't seem like people are showing up at the doctor's office with overt essential amino acid imbalances. Absolutely. It's very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. So is there a compensatory mechanism? And we wanted to explore the question of whether microbes were compensating at a more mild state of choosing to be vegan or in a more extreme state of protein malnutrition. Where can, where can bugs actually be helpful? Um, and so we, we started studying this and we wanted to, you can't create something out of nothing. So bacteria need carbon, they need nitrogen to create amino acids. And so when we thought about, okay, what would a vegan t be eating a lot of? Well, fiber more so than perhaps other types of diets because it's a largely plant-based diet. And so we started thinking about, okay, could there be a fiber component where the fiber structure is providing an essential prebiotic for the gut bacteria to produce in this case, maybe not short-chain fatty acids, but essential amino acids. And that was the premise for the study. And it was it was a rodent study. Um, and we fed different, two different uh, fermentable and non-fermentable fiber uh, to mice and then looked at a marker um, produced by the liver called FGF21 that is really sensitive to protein status in the host. And the first kind of proof of concept thing we found was in germ-free mice that have, these are mice that we use as a tool in science, they have no bacteria anywhere in their body, totally sterile. When you protein restrict them, they have no FGF21 response. It does not sense that there's a protein restriction, which means that the gut microbiome is, is required to signal to the liver in some way that there's a protein, you know, the, the host nutrient status. Um, and so that was, that was really kind of compelling that this, this a system that has long been described in the met metabolism field as being kind of the host sensor by the liver of nutrient status may actually be the first step is a gut microbiome and then the host mm. sensor. Uh, so that was kind of compelling. And then we did a series of fiber treatments with FGF21 as our readout and um, to see if we could blunt or enhance the FGF21 based on fibers when mice were protein restricted. And we did. We found that one particular fiber, cellulose, which is non-fermentable and a little confused by that, but influenced the gut bacteria and promoted the growth of one bug in particular, but others as well, um, that have the capacity to make essential amino acids. And what is that bug? It's called Parabacteroides distosonus. And do, now these are rodent models. Do humans have these as well? Humans have this bug, yeah. Um, and when we went into the gene, the genes of that bug, it has the ability to break down cellulose and it has the ability to abundantly make essential amino acids. So while we didn't prove cause and effect, there's a potentially plausible mechanism here for mm. how the gut microbiome can be influencing how we sense or how, what, how our bodies sense what's missing from our diet, and then also how we can manipulate bugs to produce what it is that we're 
missing. Mm. And how do you see that translating over to humans? I mean, theoretically, you would, in a, in a state of, you would maybe test it and being, you don't want to intentionally protein restrict people, right. but you take contacts like vegans, or you go, um, there are studies ongoing in the microbiome field, uh, looking at protein malnutrition in, in Bangladesh. Um, so would that be kwashiorkor? Yeah, like kwashiorkor. Things like that. Exactly. Um, and you, you know, look, you know, you look in these populations and you see, can you give this fiber, right? Um, and and do you see shifts? Do you see a bloom of this particular bacteria mm -hmm. in their stool? Um, and do you see, and you can measure FGF21 in the blood, non-invasively. So you can look in the stool, you can look in the blood and see actually is this happening in, in humans. So that would be like the human study mm. we would still need to do before I would go out and make recommendations. But the thought is that maybe fiber um, and the fiber choices that you make can promote a certain gut microbiome composition that can compensate in these particular conditions. You know, I I think about that a lot. And Don and I have spoken about that for many years in this idea of exactly what you're saying. And, and I see this uh, clinically is that individuals with different types of nutritional strategies don't have overt deficiencies. It doesn't mean that an individual is, say, optimized for muscle mass. So right. a vegan or vegetarian, or, or if we start with vegan, um, you know, I out of all my community, I have a really good vegan friend, and she is a orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. She has done remarkably well on a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. And the question is always why? Right. How is it that, you know, one individual can do well over a period of time, whereas, you know, the majority of my other patients say who have attempted a vegan diet don't? Yeah. And I'm curious is, you know, thinking about the science that you've done in our working even on rodent uh, rodent models is it that this gut microbiome in certain individuals are more adaptive to a vegan or vegetarian diet and maybe on the flip side of that certain individuals are more capable and will thrive on a carnivore style diet right. i mean again that takes out the fiber component which um, you know, there seems to be a lot of good data for fiber in and of itself, yeah. which leads me to think about, is it plausible that it's really about a cyclical way of eating mm -hmm. that will allow for um, optimizing, you know, a gut microbiome? Again, these I, I, I appreciate that what I'm saying is a bit nebulous. Mm -hmm. It's this idea of how could protein restriction a dietary protein restriction be optimal for muscle mass it's not mm -hmm. you know right. it's just not yeah and but some of the the more uh conceptual type thinking is there are certain individuals that have done this for long periods of time right. and how is it that they are not overtly deficient yeah yeah i know i mean and you know how you know how long does it take to create a deficiency you know i don't know if i i have i have the answer for that either but yeah i mean i think i think it could be that they you know it'd be really interesting to look at baseline microbiomes before people switch over to the diet to know is there something that they have to from the get-go or is it something that kind of is a response to that dietary change that is sort of like hey we need to mobilize you know i mean we know that when you change 
like when you go to, there's been some really compelling studies on if you go from a high, a norm, higher fiber diet to completely eliminating fiber from your diet over generations, um, bacteria will drop out from your gut microbiome population, and in some cases permanently. So you can lose. That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing because you want as many bugs as possible in your GI tract because diversity is is equated to health. Um, and so the more bacteria drop out, then A, you no longer have that bug that can carry out a function that maybe you needed. And then two, it lowers your, you lowers your diversity. But the idea that bacteria can, you know, go extinct over time mm. because of a certain dietary pattern um, has been, has been shown in, in rodents, which is compelling. Um, and that may exceed, you know, if you're talking about generations, exceed the capacity for bugs to compensate. So maybe the compensatory action is short, short, short term. Mm. And then if you keep, you know, it's like the bugs, they no longer have enough substrate or they no longer um, uh, can do it naturally. So you have to support them through some sort of supplement. Mm. Um, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, these are the questions you're asking are so important and, and interesting. And we don't have enough people asking those types of questions. I think it's um, important that, again, we have some of these transparent conversations. One of the things that we see in the health space, which, again, media is so helpful that we are able to learn more at a much faster rate, right. but the foundations aren't always there. And I think that we hear things in absolutes and we talk about gut health and leaky gut, and it becomes very confusing for the listener and the general public who really want to know what the right thing to do is and also to have less anxiety yeah. about doing it. Right. Um, one of the other things that I always hear um, is the food allergies, food sensitivities. And I am curious as to what the role of the micro... So is it correct to say microbiome or microbiota? I mean, microbiome is fine. In the yeah. relationship to allergens, food yeah. allergens. Yeah, um, important question. And, and fascinating um, because you have to go all the way back to the beginning for this from birth. Um, so our gut, okay, so first, it's an interesting question when you think about how is it that our uh, immune cells in our gut tolerate all of these microbes in our GI tract and you don't have constant immune responses. There's something called tolerance that occurs very early in life where it's like a little tickling of your, you know, GI tract and your immune cells and you get colonized through the birthing process and there's like, and it's a simplified community. It's not like a thousand bacteria at once overwhelming the system. You might get like five different bugs and they kind of tickle your immune system and your immune system gets to know them and basically says, okay, you're a native one, you're not in you know, mm -hmm. salmonella that you ingested. And so we're gonna tolerate you and we'll remember you and so on. Then as more and you get colonized more and more, your immune system gets to know all the players. And so you don't have a, an immune response to all the sitting around as we are today, um, which is a, is a, is a quite interesting phenomenon in and of itself. So people are studying things like, okay, what then determines that early colonization? Because if it's not done properly, do you, you might have an overactive immune system because your gut wasn't properly educated. So we talk about things like sanitization, right? So the five-second rule and kids playing outside and pets and things five like that. Five-second rule. It's <laughs> about 50 in our house. Yeah, right. It's on the floor, good. That's yeah. dinner. I mean, you know, there's something to it mm. where 
Um, we have definitely seen a shift that in being hyper clean with all the hand sanitizers, like, you know, hand sanitizers, if you remember, used to have antibiotics in them. No, I did not know yes, that. Yes, it wasn't just ethyl alcohol. It Gross. used to have antibiotics in the hand, just, I don't know, five, 10 years ago. And people were just putting it on like everywhere. And so um, this became part of our, you know, I mean, kids shouldn't be outside, kids are inside, and don't get, don't touch the dirt, don't touch the pet, don't lick the dog's face, all that sort of stuff. All that we know is actually good stuff mm. to do is, you know, get out there, roll around. Why? Because you're introducing your body early in life to environmental, what we call antigens, bacteria and things like that. And that actually can create a robust immune system. The more your immune system says, hey, I see this, your, your gut's getting colonized appropriately, great. Then when that bug comes in, maybe later in life or grows, it won't cause like a reaction. Um, if you only like slowly trickle in bacteria, your gut may not be fully educated until later in life. And then you get like this overt response because it wasn't properly What seated. would be an example of that? Say you, I don't know. Yeah, what would be an example of that? So what people often study in this context are things like autoimmune diseases. Hmm. Um, you know, things that fall under that category could be ranging from skin conditions, like, um, you know, even like dermatitis type things, it. chronic eczema maybe. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, to um, to food allergies, right? Peanut allergies, things like that, or sensitivities you might develop a little later in life. But I specifically think about children's mm -hmm. allergies. Um, that's an area that's studied a lot. Um, you could think about things like potentially lupus, you know, autoimmune conditions that are a bit amorphous with multiple causes. Um, so people are studying the microbiome in all of these, these conditions and, and in terms of how your immune system is educated early in life because your gut. Oh, interesting. So basically if what I'm hearing you say is that if you expose these individuals perhaps to a robust and diverse um, potential uh, antagonist mm -hmm. early that they may not go on to develop Auto, I mean, obviously, I'm saying this in absolutes, but autoimmune issues that seem to, you know, I, I'm a physician who sees patients pop up later. Yeah. Um, and it's not for the fact that we haven't been testing for it, but an individual will not have, say, Hashimoto's or right. lupus or one of these other things until it seems, whether it's 20 or 30, pop up. Yeah. You know, not later in life, guys. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, I'm not discounting genetic susceptibility to diseases, of course, of course. But, but most of these are complex diseases are multi hit, right? You have multiple mm -hmm. things that will one thing will not cause it unless it's, a, you know, monogenic disease, you know, like a BRCA1 mutation of breast cancer. And so um, you let's say you have a, a, a perhaps a, something runs in your family, right? And you want to stave it off. So how your gut then that's where your gut colonization early in life and how your immune system was educated mm. through your gi tract because your gi tract has more immune cells right. resident than the rest of your body so and it things disseminate from there um how how that is educated early can you know it doesn't change a whole lot after about puberty right so you have a window of early life to really influence a robust immune Define system. Define puberty just kidding <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 40-year-old men. I know. <laughs> no, just kidding. I'm kidding, guys. Just kidding. Um, um, that, that's really interesting. Yeah. And the way in which you would educate those individuals is to expose them to a lot. And also you mentioned peanuts. Would that be things like 
I don't know, peanut, corn, soy, some of the, I don't know, seafood, some of the things that seem to have a more allergenic component. Yeah. Gluten. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not a pediatrician and, or a physician and don't want, because I know there's strong recommendations for what kids should be exposed to early on. Um, but it's, it sometimes isn't specific to peanuts. It's an immune response to some antigen that a peanut may share with something else as well. Um, but it happens to be the peanut that sets it off. Um, so it's not so much about giving your kids a lot of peanuts early or a lot of against those things. It's a general immune robustness, right, um, that you want to create through exposure to the natural environment. Um, and and so it can be done nat- it can be done naturally. And I'm, not, and I'm not saying, you know, I think it's common sense, you know, how much is too much dirt versus what is too clean. And I think letting kids kind of be kids and get into things um, with their hands and all that is there's probably a reason why kids explore so much with their hand, the hand to mouth thing, right? It, maybe there's an evolutionary reason for that. That's interesting. What about with animals in terms of individuals that have dogs or cats or other animals? Uh, you know, in clinic, this I often see if the you know, GI pathogens actually, uh, you know, they say, oh, you can't get it from your animal. Well, uh, maybe not directly, but there's feces you're picking up or whatever. Uh, I mean, I, I actually find it to be true that oftentimes when uh, uh, a family has an animal that is infected with something that yeah. the master, I don't know what you call it, right. but the owner has it. Mm-hmm. Do you find that um, in terms of microbiome, is there any relationship between animals and humans? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> there was a couple studies actually um, where they did a household survey, yeah, and looked at you know owner pets, people with and without pets, and they, they sequenced the pet microbiome, the owner microbiome, and obviously there's some dog specific bugs and humans that won't cross over, but they found a higher relatedness of microbiomes between owners and their pets than owners and, you know, the neighbor next door sort of thing. So theoretically, yes. Mm. Um, you know, I know about things like, okay, so Giardia. Dogs have yes. Giardia all the time. Humans, Humans get, get Giardia. Yes. Yeah. So you don't, you got to be careful with feces, you know. Totally. Care, you know. But, um, you know, dogs lick your face and all that sort of stuff. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily where a lot of that is coming from. But it's a fine line in how close you are with your pet. Totally. Just common Do sense Do not again. make out with your animal. If you are <laughs> right. my patient, you know better. <laughs> that, but I, the reason I, I bring that up is when I'm thinking about it, it, you think about households where one family member eats a lot of the same food, yeah. whether they're all eating this, you know, made this salad or this steak or whatever. But the idea that an animal uh, is not necessarily eating the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, maybe your animal does eat at the table, but typically, no. Yeah. And you're still seeing a similarity between microbiome is interesting. And just from an evolutionary perspective, why that would be, is it just close contact or is there some benefit? Is the health of one individual, is this another way in which the health of one individual translates to the health of another individual. And on the flip side, if one individual is unhealthy, mm-hmm. does that also translate to the next, you know, close contact yeah. animal or individual being 
equally as unhealthy. Yeah, that's actually an interesting idea. Could it be nature's way of providing reservoirs of bacteria that are beneficial that can constantly reseed when, you know, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, a microbe, if you think like a bacteria, its goal is to multiply and get into as many, you know, other situations as they can get into. So that could also be the, the microbes natural inclination is to multiply and divide survival of the fittest, right? So that could be another just evolutionary thing. Mm -hmm. But um, with the native gut gut bacteria, um, environmental reservoirs are pretty potent. Like, you know, you have a microbiome, I have a microbiome. If we live together, probably get a lot more similar. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is First Form. With the topic of gut health being so important, it's really about prebiotics and feeding the good gut bacteria. One way to do this is to make sure that you are getting polyphenols, which are reds and greens, fruits and vegetables, very difficult to do. So I recommend OptiGreens 50, comes in small packets, you can travel. I travel all the time, I throw it in my bag, I have it in the morning, I have it again before I go to bed. It is a greens powder packed with hand-chosen, it's gluten-free ingredients. Um, It has a diverse blend of fruits, vegetables, grasses, which most people you're not gonna be eating. So this is a way to get the components of a high fruit and vegetable diet. It is 100% organic grasses. It doesn't have GMO. If you care about those things, non-synthetic botanical phytonutrients and what we would call as superfoods, digestive enzymes, the whole nine yards, okay? You guys gotta check this out. You can go to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion for OptiGreens 50. Thank you to another one of our sponsors and that's Inside Tracker. I love Inside Tracker because it allows you to take really good care of yourself. You can see what is going on, how good you're absorbing your nutrients, how well your body is doing, where your inflammation is at. Again, if you don't test, then you can't actually track and how you feel isn't necessarily how you are. Therefore, looking into your blood biomarkers are key. You can go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion for 20% off. If you haven't done this, you really should because you owe it to yourself and the people around you to take really good care of yourself. You'll get a daily action plan. You'll get some personalized guidance. This is critical. And you can go to the Inside Tracker store for a limited time and get 20% off everything they offer, which is incredible. So if you have not done it yet, now is the time. I think that you will find it very valuable. You'll be able to implement and see where you need to change and perhaps have and find strategies to be the best version of yourself. Again, that's insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. I'm so grateful to them because they helped me put this podcast out into the world. You know, people have cohabitated in, in various ways since, you know, humans are social beings. So there probably is something there that's evolutionary. I don't have the answer to it, but mm. it's, a really, it's a really intriguing concept. Where do you think the future of 
microbiome research is going. So at uh, Cedar, is it Cedar Sinai or Cedars? Cedars. Cedars with an S. Cedars Sinai, where you um, interface with a lot of different healthcare professionals. Where is the future of the gut microbiome going? Yeah. Um, Just thought I'd throw out a really easy, right. simple to answer question. Right. You know, there's um, a lot of exciting things happening in the field. Um, unfortunately, we as scientists can't keep up with the pace of the public demand for therapeutic, you know, interventions, but we're working as fast as we can. Um, so one trend that is is emerging that that I'm hoping will continue is what you many of you probably have observed is um, a lot of association studies. You know, you take a diseased person and a healthy person, look for changes, and um, and you find an association between a bug and a disease, and but you have no idea what to do with it. The field is really trying to move away from exclusively that kind of work into saying, okay, those are great observations. Why? Why? How is that happening? What's the chicken? What's the egg? Mm. So designing what we call mechanistic studies to drill down into the, the, the mechanism of that interaction is the only way you'll mm. get to therapeutics or diagnostics that any of us can use. So an example for that would be one of the bugs that is uh, indicated as an autoimmune marker, I think, is Prevotella, right? Yeah, in and some cases, yeah. But that's not it. Just because you have that bacteria, or maybe that bacteria may be more elevated, doesn't mean that you're going to go on to develop Hashimoto's. Or if individuals with Hashimoto's seem to have a higher influx of that bacteria, that's that's just association. Correct. It's not a mechanistic way of saying, okay, well, here's why this is happening. Yeah, exactly. And and to drill, and you can you can get at those. They're difficult, but you can get at them through a mix of using um, animal models. There's a there's a real utility when you have a human observation to use an animal model appropriately to answer a question versus exclusively using an animal model to make an assumption about humans. Right. You know? Big Which difference. is a really important Yeah, um, and that's point. a good way to pilot, pilot, you know, pilot studies, but really first make the observation in humans that's intriguing, great. And then you say, okay, I'm going to take the community from a Hashimoto's patient compared to a healthy person, put it into a germ-free mouse or a susceptible mouse that has no bacteria. Now they're colonized with that microbiome. Now I can look at liver function. I can look at T cell function. I can look at immune responsiveness to different things. And I can start to try to fix it, right, in through systematic ways. And then you can isolate the bacteria in, in culture and sort of try to manipulate them and really try to drill down into what organism is or community of organisms is driving that response. What role does, there's a few things, does stress play on the gut microbiome? Do we know? Almost certainly. <laughs> oh, we do. Oh, no. I mean, you just think about like, okay, we have so many terms for anxiety that relate to the gut, I you know, know? Yeah. Um, and things that are, you know, just, you know, you know and, and we know that people, when they get ready to go on stage, they tend to like really want to go to the bathroom, you know. So there's there's clearly a connection between how you feel and what's going on and, and the gut. So stress, I'm almost certain has an effect, but what is it? Is it supercharges your gut microbiome. No. Yeah. Is it cortisol? Is it, I can't answer that. Um, but there are people studying this and, I, and it is compelling. It's just, you know, how transient is the effect and how long lasting is it? I don't know. And I suppose the same thing would go for exercise. 
Yeah, same with exercise. And the, definitely there is there are papers showing that, ex- and it depends on the type of exercise, obviously, that um, different types of metabolic, you know, marathon runners versus a sprinter, totally different fuel usage, different demands on the microbiome lactate and all that sort of stuff will, will make an impact and it'll create you know different states of anaerobic you know the anaerobic state of the body can influence the gut as well still emerging area we need a lot more people studying exercise in the gut microbiome the data that's out is compelling but very few and far between um, but almost certainly has an effect as a gut microbiome researcher do you feel that a lot of the diseases that we see in western society start in the gut yeah, I do. I do. Um, that's sort of the philosophy of my lab uh, when we started is that the, and that's why I was alluding to earlier about paying attention to gut function, bowel movements, dual quality, all that sort of stuff. Because early signs, and this is more coming out more and more early signs of things like even Parkinson's show up in the gut first. Mm. Um and we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, what are these biomarkers in the blood or in the stool um, or through biopsies can we look at to say, okay, you, you've got a high risk now for this disease because you're showing the early signs. And then it gives people opportunities to maybe intervene, right? So huge impacts on quality of life. Um, so, and then metabolic diseases, I believe type 2 diabetes starts in the gut. I think local hyperglycemia can affect. And why is that? I, I'm fascinated. GLP-1 and GLP-2 yeah. are strongly influenced through the gut microbiome. So these are gut hormones, yes. glucagon-like peptides. Um, really, uh, really cool data just from down the street here at, at Rutgers um, showing that different fibers you eat can affect the microbiome that alters the hormone, the GLP balance that can affect your propensity, how you how you metabolize glucose and, and store glucose um, and your insulin response. So there's some cool mechanisms coming out, but we again, there's just not there's not enough of it for as for what seems like a very obvious connection metabolism mm. the gut microbiome. Um, but yes, looking at the gut, I think is a is a early signs there for long term metabolic disease um, and autoimmunity as as well. And it seems that one of the the great things about looking at the gut is you can do something about it because you're eating or you're choosing foods. And probably from all your research, when you need to take an antibiotic, you probably think twice, if not four times about that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about diet, but nothing will alter your microbiome more than antibiotics. Um, What about other medications? Yeah. Another really interesting area of research. And there are certain certain colleagues of mine who really are looking at what we call xenobiotics, anything you take. Um, and the it ranges from two ways to look at it. The drug can affect the microbiome and then have other systemic effects, or the microbiome can alter the drug hmm. and make it more or less effective. So there are studies looking at gut microbiome kind of inactivating certain drugs. And so if you have a certain composition, you have to think about your dosage of drugs. Wow. Is that the standard of care yet? No, it's not the standard. How would we, as a provider, that would be amazing. How would one as a provider do that? Is it, is it, gene sequencing is it it i mean it would be yeah it would be knowing what microbiome you have Mm. but really i mean we only have this information for very narrow drugs like we have it for a drug called digoxin which is a cardiac drug Mm -hmm. that's not even used that widely but it was a beautiful 
mechanism for that drug right. and being metabolized by bacteria. Um, and so we need a broad, you know, we need people studying, you know, like statins. There's people studying statins in the microbiome, um, which is really interesting. Um, so we need more of this this kind of work done to really understand the microbiome drug interaction. Does the same, does that same model of impact hold true for, say, vitamins and minerals that we would take orally? Yeah, it's a good, I don't know. I don't know. Um, in terms of how they affect the yeah, microbiome? would, for example, if you took oral vitamin C. Yeah. And assuming it's in a delivery system that is going to interface right. with your gut microbiome, do is there an interplay between the gut microbiome that perhaps makes you uh, see mm -hmm. less of that vitamin C or more, or the, yeah. the follow-up metabolites? So, I mean, I would suspect that there is, <coughs> excuse me, um, some some. Um, metabolism there i guess you what you 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 have to think about where is that vitamin or mineral naturally being absorbed in the gi tract and are there mm. is there an abundance of bugs there so a lot of these are absorbed high up in the gi tract your greatest density is in your colon so there may be an impact maybe minimal but for things that are absorbed in the lower small intestine the ileum and certainly in the colon then yes i think we really have to pay attention there so what do you eat everyone's like what what is Do the I the eat? gut microbiome uh, researcher? Oh gosh, pizza. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I do love pizza. I, you know, okay, first of all, everything in moderation. I do not deprive myself of anything, but I don't do anything in excess either. So I it's really important to me that my diet is balanced. I focus a lot on fiber. I really do. Um, my meals are very um you know, I, I rely on salads a lot with a, a mix of you got your you have your greens, but there'll be grains in there too. Um, and there'll be, you know, fruit and you have the pectin you have. So I believe in the mix of fibers. And also I, I, I will consume pro the products that have fiber supplements in there. Um, and those I do have, too. I think that's they've really come a long helpful. way. Yeah, I mean, sure. Made it really easy, which I think is wonderful. So I try to get the blend of fibers that way through either beverages uh, or foods or the whole foods. Um, so I eat a lot of salads. Um, I always have a protein shake for breakfast. Um, uh, usually a Greek yogurt mixed with a protein powder and fruit and I blend it all together or some kefir. Um, and, and the, so I always have fermented foods in my diet mm -hmm. as well. So starting from morning, um, in my salads, there's usually some sort of fermented pickle in it. Um, and then, um, and then at dinner, um, I, so generally it's, it's pretty low carb, high fiber, high protein, um, I like and, your thinking. And, and fermented food heavy. And this, you've been eating this way for a while? Yeah. Okay. And was this, this kind of was born out of your research? Yeah, and others' research, mm. you know. Um, the, my colleagues in the field who are doing really compelling work. I mean, I'm a consumer of, of literature, and so I read these things. And when you start seeing enough consistent patterns, right, in humans and in rodents and it's corroborating, you start to really pay attention to these. And, and, um, and, and, and the diet literature has really come a long way. So I incorporate the things that I that I see consistently, and what I mentioned is consistent to me. Um, and I think there's probably a bunch of other things in the next five years we're going to learn about. Do you think that um, in terms of the different more extreme diets like the carnivore diet, do we know how that affects the the gut microbiome or the the ebb and flow of 
uh, adding fiber or taking away, you know, because yeah. I go through periods of time where you're probably going to cringe, but where I'm a low fiber person. Right. And if I do that, I'll, I'll maybe take a fiber supplement, yeah. something like that. But, you know, in the winter, I tend not to really eat any salads. Yeah. I try to eat seasonally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so obviously we're in the New York area. There, you know, it's not like an avocado tree outside or whatever else yeah. there is. Yeah. And I'm just curious as to how uh, seasonally, mm-hmm. again, not just based on the season, but those kind of dietary choices would perhaps impact yeah. health yeah. and wellness. Do people become accustomed to that? How does that? Right. I mean, you got to, so I'll address the sort of more extreme diets first and the seasonal. If you, so how you want, I don't, and I don't have any, however people want to eat is yeah, what right. they feel good on and feel healthy on. So I'll make that caveat, but except all day ultra processed foods. Yeah. Like I mean, come on, come the on. chocolate chip waffles that I may or may not have in my fridge for my kids. And that would be the freezer actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, not that I'm eating those. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind <laughs> if you did. I'm going to eat them under the table here. <laughs> right. So you, your gut, you want. I mentioned earlier, you want diversity right. of your gut microbiome. How do you get diversity? It's by eating different kinds of foods because certain bacteria only subsist on one type of thing that you feed them. So you need to feed many different types of things in order to have many different types of bugs. So if you switched from your omnivore diet to a carnivore diet, and now there's a whole several food groups that your gut is no longer seeing, you'll lose a lot of your diversity mm. and you'll only retain the bugs that help you break down the the meat product and your gut bacteria might get more efficient at breaking down the meat product but you'll have lost diversity so you just have more of the meat fermenting bugs but you've lost maybe your your short chain fatty acid producers because those need fiber substrate um, and so there will be certain things that then your gut epithelium is not getting as mm. a result. Um, you can take the fiber. You, and so in that case, you've got to take a fiber supplement, like no way around that if you want to have a normal, healthy gut. Um, but you can't recreate whole food eating with variety, you know. And so I personally don't advocate any extreme diet that's like only has a few food, food types within a food group because you lose a lot of that diversity. Mm. So I put that out there. Um, in terms of seasonal eating, I'm a big advocate for that. It's hard to practice that, all, you know, depending on where in the in the world that you live. Um, but there is great research in po- in humans, um, and particularly in the Hadza population in, in Africa, where these are um, uh, tribal populations, kind of hunter gatherers, and they eat seasonally. And they have a wet season and a dry season, and there's the meat-heavy season, and there's the vegetable-heavy season. And their microbiome shifts in a very predictable way um, with the seasons. And they don't have overt disease. You know, That's they, interesting. Yeah. They don't have obesity, and they don't have, and they're also active, but they don't have a lot of the things that we're plagued with here. And so people have been really interested in these populations because of that. You know, what is it dietary? What's the lifestyle? What's the community setting? Um, but there's a real, the dietary part has really emerged as a, a driver for um, their their lack of disease. And because the microbiome is so aligned with their diet, um, they're pointed diet microbiome systemic effects potentially. 
So if we were to eat seasonally, you know, there would be, you could do that experiment and, and see, um, but that is how our bodies were evolved to eat. Our bodies are still not, you know, 2022 modern day bodies. They're still genetically back in, you know, our hunter gatherer days. Mm. And so our natural inclination metabolically and genetically is to respond to the way our hunter gatherer ancestors used to eat. Um, so it's easier probably to maintain a microbiome with that kind of eating than with our constant eating all the time and eating of foods that we didn't see until really recently. Would you say that the pattern of eating, you mentioned there that the constant eating, do you think that there is something to be said for feast and famine or intermittent fasting? Does that change the gut microbiome? Does it give it a break? Yeah, uh, we've, we've been very interested in this in, in our lab. Um, and we've done some studies on intermittent fasting, really looking at it from the gut inflammation side, um, not so much metabolically. And we definitely see that, you know, a 24 hour fast, um, just one 24 hour fast in a week, uh, this was in mice, but we also did this in humans, um, can dramatically shift your microbiome in a, in, at pretty much at 18 hours of, of fasting, water only fast. Um, but then when you reintroduce back the diet you were eating, it kind of rebounds. Mm. But there are certain changes in the microbiome that still even a week out persist. And what we found, these are suppression of these harmful bacteria and promoting some beneficial bacteria. At seven days, it starts to rebound a little bit. Have wa oh, not of water fasting <laughs> seven days, but you mean the, the bacteria seems yeah, to... After, yeah, you go back to your native diet. Mm. And at seven, after seven days of being back on your native diet, some of the changes still persist, but they, they start to rebound. So the thought is, what if you fasted now? We only tested a one-time fast. What if you started fasting every week, once a week, or a couple times a week? Could mm. you fix those beneficial changes in time? And the idea is would be hopefully yes. Um, but what we could see that was interesting is a single 24-hour fast. Uh, we saw a reduction of all intestinal inflammatory markers um, in models that were susceptible to chronic inflammation. That's incredible. And it was significant. It was significant. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. What is next for you? What is next? Um, we, um, there's a lot of areas we're really interested in at the moment, um, in addition to what we've already talked about, but we're, we're getting really interested in, um, genetic modification of bacteria for benefit. Mm. Um, and so that's basically, I was talking to you about, you know, we need mechanisms in microbiome research. One way to really get at some mechanistic, like is this bug or this community of bacteria causing this problem or can it be used thera thera therapeutically? It's, we, there are methods now that exist to go in and manipulate a gene that, that let's say you want this bacteria to produce a lot of short chain fatty acids more than it normally does. You can go in and manipulate it and get that bug to produce a lot of short chain fatty acids. So now bugs can do things that are hugely beneficial to you, or maybe you can turn off genes that are harmful. And so um, we have collaborations where we can edit bacteria and then put them back in and see are they now doing more of the good stuff and doing less of the bad stuff um, and, and test that and then see if we can actually create some therapies um, out of that and maybe potentially edit bugs to produce more essential amino acids. So you can actually give that to people who mm. are vegan or give it to people with kwashiorkor. 
children with kwashiorkor core um, and and see if that's a tractable way to to compensate through mm. genetic engineering of bugs and these bacteria can they're not going to take over your you can edit them so they basically do their job and, and die how would someone do that they would ingest it in a capsule yeah. or a, yeah in a capsule in a something like that yeah wow yeah so. sounds like that is the uh a potential interface for the future of the gut microbiome and medicine. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, we need to, with all of the money poured into microbiome research, we need some, you know, therapy. We're understanding a lot, but what's the tangible outcome from, from all of this work? Um, and that's what I think the field is really trying to come up with. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Of course. I know we covered a lot of stuff. Yeah. And uh, your work is really valuable and you are a very fine scientist. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you for coming on. I will put all the links on where people can find you and your lab and all your research. Thanks. It was great. Thanks for having me on. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.